Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Market Watch. It is Friday the 13th of August. Ooh. Oh, Piers, fr- Friday the 13th, trading days. You must have had a couple of those over the years. Were, were they memorable? Uh, no. <laughs> In short. Well, you know there's a Friday the 13th. There's at least one every year. At least. Sometimes it's between one and three per year. Depends on obviously how it falls, but... But the Iceman doesn't buy into that type of thing. That doesn't rock the Iceman, right? Nah, come on. <laughs> that, that stuff. I mean, do you, know what the, do you know what the word is for the fear of Friday the 13th? No, go on. Well, I'm going to try and say this, but I'll probably fail. It's frigatriskaidekophobia. That's the fear oh, okay. of Friday the 13th. <laughs> And that is not a fear that I have. Do you know okay. why? Do you know why people fear it? Allegedly. Well, as you're, you know, fact checking. So let's let's have it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there are a few actually. There are a few uh, angles people point towards, but one of the, I think, one of the most popular ones is is the Knights Templar, Friday the thirteenth, October thirteen oh seven. Oh yeah, I remember that. Of yeah, course, yeah. yeah. That was a that bad ever. trading day. Uh, <laughs> that basically, hundreds of knights got got basically arrested by the French king, tortured and executed. And uh, that that's believed to be one of the reasons, one of the sources for this 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 kind of phobia, this fear. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, if we can't add anything on a market side, well, at least you've learned one fact there for the people that are that's, listening. Absolutely. That's bringing real that's value. value. That's value right there. <laughs> and, and so, look, let's get straight into it and let's have a, a bit of a conversation about this week. And I thought I'd change it up a little bit, actually, because, you know, for one, trading volumes have definitely 
uh, noticeably declined. And that's not unusual seasonally during the summer and August. I had the S&P 500 chart up at the beginning of my briefing. And although, although when you look out on a very high time frame on a daily chart looking from the pandemic, I mean, it does look quite incredible where we're, where we continue to head. But the range of August has got infinitely more narrow. Um, yesterday, the VIX yeah. fell to about 15. Uh, in yeah. context, we were up at 80 at one point in the height of the pandemic. Um, but just, just thinking of that, the fact that markets are quite quiet, obviously a lot of people are waiting now for, for Jackson Hole, which is a big stage for the Fed chair to um, potentially unveil some more details on tapering. So I guess the market's waiting for that. But when people talk about this VIX index, mm. what exactly is it that they're referring to? Well, talking about fear, like we were a minute ago, this, <laughs> yeah. is, this is nicknamed the fear gauge. Um, Basically, when it goes up, that's a signal to suggest that sentiment is turning negative. And it's, um, it's a complex sort of derivative product. Basically, it's looking at the, uh, it's kind of trying to compare the volumes traded in different options. So um, for the VIX, how many, essentially how many, what's the call option volume versus the put option volume? Now, now call options you'll be buying if you think the market's going up. Put options you'll buy to cover yourself if you think the market's going down. Now, when the VIX value rises, essentially you're getting a lot more put option volume than call option volumes. This is a lot more traders that are buying protection. Uh, it's a hedging tool to buy protection against the stock market dropping. So the idea is the more people that are buying puts, then obviously the more people are fearing the market's going to drop and this sees the VIX value rise. So that's why it's called the fear gauge. When it's dropping, it's the opposite, of course. So now we're super low. And of course, yeah, you get an inverse correlation between the VIX and the S&P index. So the, the VIX is super low and the index is all-time highs. So when you hear this VIX, because I know that Will on the team uh, he he often gets kind of mildly excited when he sees the VIX <laughs> tracking at very low levels because historically it tends to not stay that low for long. Yeah. Uh, do you have any view on that? Um, <clears throat> trading the VIX, most people use, well, you, so you can trade the VIX outright. And so you can use it as a speculative um, vehicle. So you can buy the VIX if you think the stock market's going to drop, right? And so it's 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 a it's a dangerous one though, trying to trade the VIX because that thing can that that thing can grind lower for days, weeks, months, which is what what is exactly has happened through this summer. But if you think there's a uh, there's an incident on the horizon that's just going to stoke a bit of panic, let's say Jackson Hole. Let's say Jackson Hole, right? And Biden, uh, Biden, Powell comes out, and let's just say super hawkish. Then you'll you'll probably see the VIX spike. And when it's when it's at a really low level, you can get some really big spikes in terms of percentage change on the day, if you like. Um, but it's one of those trades that's super hard. It's all about timing, and you've got to time it, and and that means you you've got to have your finger on the pulse. You got to be in at the right time when when that thing spikes and and get out pretty quickly because what tends to happen is you get short term spikes and then it just all kind of dissipates back. Um, it's a tricky one timing. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, look, I've got a list of other questions. So what I thought, rather than do our normal routine of focusing on a one or two topics, 
I thought given the week overall has been relatively quiet, I thought we could just rattle through several. And I'm going to give you a bit of a challenge because I know you are the king of explaining things in a very digestible way but can you do it in a timely fashion <laughs> is the test Ooh. so i'm going to give you okay i'm going to let you max out at about Bearish. three minutes on each response but you know i'll, I'll be a bit flexible okay. I'm, not, I'm not that harsh so I've, right. got, I've got seven more here going seven across topics. the spectrum of like stuff in the news that i think people should be aware of and i think you can add some value as well just giving a top level response on what you think about it so okay. first off we had US CPI, this, US CPI this week, probably the biggest data point. It increased 0.5% from June and 5.4% from a year ago. Um, what do you think? Is it important? Uh, Is it not? Well, um, it, it, it showed us what we expected. And so I think it's important in the grander scheme of things um, with regards to that whole argument around is transitory, um, is inflation transitory? And the evidence is playing out that suggests that it is. Um, that it's not fully conclusive yet, but basically when you're... So if you look at the annualized CPI reading, it was 5.4%, which was the same as last year, the last month. <clears throat> so that's plateaued, it seems. We obviously need more data. But more interestingly, looking at the shorter-term fluctuations, looking at the month-on-month CPI reading, that came in at 0.5%, which was actually the slowest monthly increase uh, since February. So we, we've peaked like, so we peaked in June, it seems. And in June, the monthly uptick was 0.9%. Now we've dropped to 0.5%. And what we want to see in, in data in months to come is that that continues to drop back to kind of 0.3, 0.2. And then we'll know that that, trans, that inflation is transitory as we expected. So, you know, it wasn't a surprise that that, that transitory narrative is still on track. Okay. And that leads us into the next question, which is kind of an extension from this from a policy perspective. Everyone's kind of very centered in on tapering discussion. There's just so many Fed speakers, I can't even count them at the moment, who keep talking about it and a variety of different perspectives, but definitely leaning much more towards this is definitely happening. It's just when's it going to happen? So a Reuters poll overnight has come out. And according to 28 of 43, excuse me, 28 of 43 economists surveyed. Um, They're looking at September, the announcement of tapering will come. And then nearly 60% of those 43 expect the Fed to actually start then tapering in Q1, the rest going for for the end of the year. Right. Well, I mean, that's pretty much, well, I think on the pod last week, I said January, didn't I? So I think the, looks like I'm consensus, um, for once. So I, I agree with those polls. I think the, so I think they'll start in January and I think we're on track for that. I think at the moment the, the kind of the nearest hurdle is when does Powell announce that? Um, and uh, is it going to be Jackson hole, which is at the end of August. So you know, literally a couple of weeks away, or will it be the September fed meeting? And it'll probably be, I would say Powell will just kind of, set the table at Jackson Hole without specifically giving the timeframes and the parameters. And then uh, the September meeting, that's when they'll announce that they intend to taper starting January. That's my, that's my belief. But so, as so market, I said, market yeah, reaction to that then, is that going to be, I mean, that's the consensus, right? 
So yeah. theoretically, what this the market will manage this, and equity market just continues well, on its merry old way. You know, this is this is monetary policy in action. Um, it takes months for months of groundwork for Powell to be able to say we're going to start tapering. Months, right? So. The point being is by the time we get to that moment where he says we're going to start, not for a few months yet, but we are going to start in a few months, then we're so prepared for it that, you know, it can be quite smooth. And, you know, in, they've, they've handled this absolutely spot on. Um, and then it becomes as long, look, as long as growth, underlying economic growth remains solid and, and strong, then fine. They've engineered this first hurdle very well. So they'll announce that we're going to start tapering. Then it'll be, as I was saying last week, right, how quickly are they going to taper? You know, when's, when, when are they going to hit zero? And then, of course, when are they going to start hiking rates? So for me, it'll be a bit more interesting. I think markets will be more sensitive in September, not to the facts that, guys, we're going to taper in January. I think they'll be more sensitive to any information around the speed of taper or indeed any further guidance about when will the first rate hike be? I think that will be the more important detail. I must admit, when you said the, the Fed have done this perfectly so far, it did make me want to quickly jump on and get long the VIX when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I felt that feeling, but I did feel that just then, 30 seconds ago. Well, but um, we, we shall see. But um, no, I, I agree with you. I think I think it's exactly how it will go. But um, next one then yeah. is about um, COVID-19. Uh, and this, this definitely on a, on a top level, it's definitely been a weighted factor for Asia at the moment. We've seen this in China, Australia still having difficulties really locking it down at the moment, really requiring further restrictions. But I wanted to look at the US. Now, at the moment, uh, you'd be, you could almost forget because we just punched three consecutive record highs in the lights of the Dow and the S&P. But this week, coronavirus cases and hospitalizations in the US, we're at a six month high. So this isn't a problem right now for markets, evidently so. Could it be? And what would that look like for it to get to that point in your mind? Um, I, yeah, I don't think, I think if it was going to be a problem for markets, then you'd be seeing it now already. Uh, and we're not, stocks are at all time highs. And I think stocks are, or tr traders and investors are <clears throat> rightly or wrongly, you know, nonchalant about this because they believe the vaccine rollout has been sufficient to, you know, result in, in uh, the death uh, peaking a lot lower. Like, I mean, the UK is the great obvious example, right? With our spike in the summer, you know, it hasn't led to deaths going up anything like they did in previous spikes. And although the, we, although the US is behind on the vaccine rollout front, they've, they've, they've got enough of the vaccines done, I think. And actually, in a way, this kind of just, uh, I, I would say, just kind of prods those that haven't been vaccinated yet. Perhaps they're sat on the fence thinking, you know, do I want it? Do I not? Actually, do I need it now? Well, well, actually, this is that prod to go. Actually, I probably do. Right, I'm going to go. So, you, I, I would expect actually vaccine rates to perhaps tick back higher, um, which in the long term is actually a good thing. Um, but as I was saying last week, as, as well, I think it's you know it's, it's very politicised, isn't it? And it's not a coincidence that you know it's your Republican, uh, you know, Trump-leaning states 
that are are seeing the highest um, number of cases and, and actually the highest number of deaths. And, and that's because for some bizarre reason, they think not having the vaccine is some kind of political stance, political statement, um, insanity. Yeah, and on a political divide, quite the opposite in the likes of California and San Francisco, where you're going to need to show proof of COVID-19 vaccinations to enter restaurants, for example. Uh, so really yeah. just show that. It's quite quite divisive, really, in terms of the political consequence of this. It's become such a, a political point, hasn't it? Kind of like the face masks in Britain, I guess, to a certain extent. Um, yeah. But yeah, to give it some, some overlay, let's say, of numbers. So 30.7% of the world population has now received at least one vaccine shot. Thir 30 or 13? 30. Three, okay, three zero, zero spot seven. Sixteen percent okay. are fully vaccinated. Only one point two percent of people in low income countries, though, have had at least one shot. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's the problem. And and yeah, I think as kind of the rich are gearing up for jab number three, I think it's pretty disgusting that we're yeah. gearing up for jab number three when. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Like just looking at one yet. what a crisis does, whether it's the financial crisis or the COVID crisis. The, I was just listening in. Our summer analysts were doing a pri private equity real estate uh, presentations this morning, and I just so happened to tune in. They were talking about the UK housing market, ah, yeah. uh, and they were talking about the fact that basically the middle to high income earners have got infinitely richer whereas those at the other end the division has increased and then you're talking about covid as well in um because that even if we forget the low-income countries on a global level even in the united states i mean you just look at payrolls and the unemployment demographics between blacks and latinos for example against white white people there's yeah. a big division so yeah it's definitely um, going to be interesting, I think, over the, when I say medium term, the next couple of years, not through the midterms, when we get to the next ele election cycle, it'll be interesting to see how the, how the land lies then when we're kind of more well out of the back end of COVID touchwood by then, of what the scars are underlying of society, the impact that yeah. this has had, kind of. Um, yeah, I think you're right. The, the real damage we won't really be able to see for, for a few years yet. Hmm. But look, let's move on and yep. let's talk about the Senate passing the $1 trillion part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill this week. Yep. So uh, not a surprise. That easily got through, right? Six, what was it? 69 to 32, was it? Yeah, it was an yeah, easy came. passage. Yeah. So you obviously got all the Democrats voting for it and actually a few Republicans uh, as well. So the bipartisan uh, bill passes... 100% as expected. So it's not really a, a market moving event that it's $1 trillion on infrastructure. But of course, the, the Democrats are going, you know, they're going for, for their double dipping here. They're going for the big one um, in that they, they want to attach a three and a half um, trillion dollar additional bill to it. So this is where this is where the, the uncertainty lies. And that, that three and a half trill, that's for Medicare and tax credits and climate initiatives and, and, and so on. So they've kind of done, they've got the, they, they've got the, they've, they've basically plucked the low hanging fruit here. 
by just getting that infrastructure bill through, knowing the Republicans would vote for it. But yeah, the, ne- the, the biggest job is ahead. And so there is still uncertainty as to how much in the end this total sort of spend might, might look like. And just talking of, the, uh, of US politics, moving that over then to the Biden administration, earlier this week, there's reports that they were putting some pressure on OPEC, so the oil producing countries, predominantly in the Persian Gulf and Africa, to, to pump more. And we know that OPEC as part of their agreed deal is increasing supply by 400,000 barrels per day as of this month. But there's still five odd million or so that they need to return to market over a period of time, recovery all being well. But what's your take on that? The US putting a bit of pressure on OPEC to, to pump more? Well, I mean, so on the one hand, people might think, hang on a minute. So you've got the US and Saudi that have got pretty positive relations. And, you know, and Saudi Arabia are basically the king of OPEC. So is this the US trying to use their levers to try and get OPEC to increase production, right? That, that's what you might, you might read into it like that when you see those headlines, except that's entirely false. Um, are they, they going to pay attention to this? Absolutely not. And it's not this, this comment from Biden. It's actually not for OPEC. Um, OPEC are doing their own thing. They've got their strategy. They are increasing. They're not going to now um, accelerate the increase in production just because Biden's said, you know, can you do me a favor? This is all, this is all about internal U.S. politics. It's got nothing to do with, with OPEC. And, it's, and this is about, you know, gasoline prices at the pump um, for your average Joe. Um, they've, they've gone up 50%. In, in the last, well, compared to last year, right? In the last 12 months, petrol has gone up 50% for that end consumer. And, you know, Americans drive a lot. You know, we talk about the US driving season. Well, it's now, it's in the summer, right? And they get in their cars and they go on holiday and they tend to go on holiday internally and they tend to do a lot of driving. And they've got typically, you know, on average, way less efficient vehicles than other developed nations. And so they use a lot of petrol and that costs a lot and they're not happy about it. So Biden, what are you going to do? Why is petrol so expensive? Oh, and by the way, we've got a midterm coming up. And, you know, I'm thinking about maybe not voting for you because this is costing me a lot, man. So uh, so Biden then, of course, you know, highly political, shifts blame and goes, guys, it's not our fault. It's OPEC. Look, OPEC, can you increase production, please? You know, implying that it's their fault and, you know, trying to kind of address that slight kind of, you know, negative political situation that might be brewing ahead of the midterms. That, that's what it's all about. Yeah, and Goldman Sachs have come out and they said they believe the White House call for OPEC Plus to, to boost output is unlikely to materialize, not just on the political side, but they were talking about the Delta variant threat. Um, but one thing that I was going to ask you was that GS have got a year-end target for WTI crude at 80 bucks a barrel. And so right. if, if oil was to, say, go into the range of, let's say, 80 to $100 a barrel, where the pressure mm. then internally on Biden ratchets up a few notches, does he then need to actually start, as you said at the very beginning, having that serious conversation with the Saudis and saying, actually, because he can't, given his policies in the, the composition of what his administration has is, is kind of positioned itself for, he can't allow the US producers to, 
to just start pumping? Or can he? Can he just release a little bit to push the price down? He's got a problem here, Biden, because he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. I think that OPEC, should oil get to 80? Are Goldman's right? I don't know, but I I share a similar opinion. I I would expect oil to trend there and where they're back. Does it go to more than that, as you're saying, 80 to 100? What do OPEC do about that? Well, to be honest, I think OPEC, have, they've, they've changed their game plan. And I think they'll be very happy if oil's at $90. Very happy. Thanks very much. And I don't think they'll be in any rush to dramatically accelerate production in order to get the price back down to, to, to what? Back down, you know, what, what's the best price for OPEC now? You know, I'd say it's... Eighty dollars is fine. Ninety, I don't know. There's no, there's no harm with that. I don't think. And the problem that Biden has is, as you say, well, can't he go internally to the shale producers and goes, right, team, you know, let's open the taps here. Well, of course, that then entirely contrasts with his green um, credentials and and his renewable kind of drive. And obviously, one of the part of the three and a half trillion dollar bill is all about climate initiatives. And so he can't be, he can't be pushing that agenda. And they're backhanding to the to the um, shale producers to increase production just to get the petrol price down. So, yeah, I I think he'll have a bit of a problem on that front. Well, I know the solution here for for Ooh. Team Biden. Go on. You provoke Iran in the latest new round of negotiations, and actually, there's a new hardliner foreign minister who's come in to lead the negotiations on behalf of Iran. I would cause conflict with that. I would make that. Um, to the point where it becomes more on the hostile side that then they start to play that out in a proxy through Yemen on Saudi infrastructure again. And then you just say to Saudi Arabia, look, we could sort this for you, but yeah. it comes at a cost. And Saudi don't <laughs> have a choice when it comes to military support in the region. Yeah. So interesting, <laughs> interesting conspiracy theory. Um, but yeah, I'd say, yeah, maybe not a conspiracy theory is unfair. I mean, I don't think that's, that's too, I don't think that's beyond the realms of, uh, of reality at all. So, yeah. So basically you're saying, watch, watch the Iran negotiations. That's the, that's the kind of tell that's the trigger. I think so. I think that that has more depth to it than just actually this going back to the nuclear accord and what's going on. I think there's a lot more intertwined with the Middle East political situation and oil on the top level. So yeah, it's complex, but definitely worth watching. All right. So next one is, let's just um, move it over to some single stock news. And Mm. one that came out last night was Disney. Shares were up about 6% or so last night. Um, now, I'm not going to go through all the numbers, but one of the key things here is they signed up about 12 million subscribers to its flagship streaming service in the most recent quarter. So the most recent quarter, they've added 12 million subscribers. I mean, I thought, yeah. I mean, I took Disney Plus maybe 12 months ago, definitely not the last quarter, because I was like, geez, I'm just, I need to give my daughter some like, some, so I'm running out of what YouTube kids can <laughs> offer at this point. <laughs> Um, so I turned to Disney, having exhausted other other measures. Um, but in a sense, then they've doubled its customer base from a year ago, and they're outpacing yeah. rivals such as Netflix. So is this just they're just making hay while the sun shines because of the situation in context of the pandemic, or is this a bit of a problem for Netflix? Do Netflix have like I know Netflix? There's AT and T, there's Apple TV. They've got more competition yeah. now than ever. 
Yeah, yeah. And would Netflix be worried about these types of numbers or or not? They are very scared. Yeah. Uh, this isn't this isn't Disney making hay whilst the sun shines and COVID. Is this is a very this is a masterful um, sort of decade long strategy that they have absolutely nailed. And now they're really seeing the benefits. I mean, if you walk back through, I mean, like if you take Hollywood generally, right? If you take big um, sort of movie producers, well, of course they've been hoovered up. They're, they're, they aren't, don't exist anymore. They're their own, like for example, Amazon bought MGM would, would be a great example. So really tech owns Hollywood. Okay, apart from Disney, who, who kind of managed to survive. And the way they managed to survive was to take tech on at their own game. And so basically back in, well, not only, not only from buying the rights to content. So that's one part of the story, right? And so they bought Marvel, of course. Do you know how much they paid for Marvel? This is in 2012. Do you know how much they bought the Marvel well, rights for? Some horrendously expensive. <laughs> Go on, have, have a guess. Uh, I'm trying to think what MGM went for type of figure. Yeah, I don't know. 35 actually. billion. It, it was 4 billion, which I think is one of, the bar, one of the bargains of the century. Oh my goodness, yeah. Uh, Disney bought the Marvel series for 4 billion. They also Sorry, bought... what year was this? In said? 2012. 2012. They yeah, also I bought... that was before they started pumping the Marvel series so aggressively, even yeah. in the last 10 yeah. years. Then they bought Star Wars as well, of course. That cost mm. them 4 billion. Oh. They made some amazing content acquisitions, right? So that's on the content side. Mm. But then it's about the platform. Okay. So how do you get a platform like Netflix? So here they bought, well, so there's a well, you might know a bit about this, possibly. So there was a because this actually goes back to Major League Basketball. Um, this this story, okay. um, because they bought something called well, Disney bought BamTech, right? BamTech was originally called MLB Advanced Media. Basically, that was the company that took originally the Major League Basketball and, and put it online, and you could subscribe to watch the games. Right, this is like 10 years ago. Okay, this is pre-Netflix and all the rest of it. Okay, they were like actually one of the first to ever create a platform, subscription online platform. Okay, MLB Advanced Media. They then got bought out and became BamTech. BamTech then, this platform builder, then went to ESPN and they, they launched the ESPN online platform in 2018 to amazing success. And then Disney in 2018 bought them, bought BamTech, Disney's deal with Netflix. So Netflix were able to stream Disney content, but that ended in, at the end of 2019. So that's your big pivot and turning point. Disney said to Netflix, we're not renewing that deal. All of our content is no longer available on your platform because we've got our own. And then they started pumping the Marvel and the Star Wars. And it has the execution of this strategy has, it is beautiful. It's like one of the great case studies. This will be a business school, you know, an MBA case study for, for years to come, in my opinion. So it's, it's so good. And then, so now it's about, it's obviously now they're a tech 
then now they're a tech platform. They've just got amazing content to go with it, right? And it's all theirs. And their user growth, as you're saying, is, is smashing Netflix now. And yeah, Netflix, they, they, they got a problem. Yeah, so interesting. Um, but look, the, the biggest question is still yet to come though, Piers. Oof, go on then. Messi leaving Barcelona. Yeah, I, I was I was with you when um, one of the one of the guys in the team came up to you. Uh, we we're having a drink at the time. and <laughs> said, uh, "How much do you want to bet Messi's leaving Barcelona?" What is it you said at the time? You didn't you didn't buy it, did you? You thought he was no. Well, I didn't. Uh, I didn't think he would, but I thought they'd get some kind of deal done. But I'm sure I read I that wrong. he actually said that he wanted to stay and he'd take a fifty percent pay cut. He did, but, but the problem is that the Spanish league um, finance rules meant that the Barcelona wage um, bill was violating their their cap. So something had to give, mm. but um, Griezmann and the like, and, and Coutinho, who are other Barcelona players that are on monster salaries, they're still under contract, right? They've still got years left on their contract, whereas Messi's contract ended. So Griezmann and Coutinho, they don't want to leave. So they're not going to sell them because they're still in a contract and they don't want to leave. So it actually, weirdly, it was Messi. It was the only real option that they had. So to kind of offload Messi to actually get their wage bill um, back, you know, into that financial fair play restrictions. And so, yeah, he's so, gone. So, 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 so two things here, or three things for one, um, talking about the team, so PSG, where he's heading on a two-year deal. Yeah. Um, I read this morning, or I saw a headline, that apparently Mbappe's future at Paris is uncertain because his contract's coming up next summer, and there's some talk that they're going to pivot him out. And you know who they're going to bring in? Harry Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite as good as Harry Kane. Um, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo. Oh God, really? Two PSG. What to 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 get Ronaldo and Messi on the same team sheet? Yeah. Imagine. I mean, even I would like to see that. I can't believe it. Although Ronaldo hasn't done France yet, he, he's he's cracked the Premier League in the UK. He's smashed it up in Spain. He's now winning titles in Italy, although not last year. But um, so maybe maybe France is on his list. I imagine though, but you know, if, if basketball, as you say, which is what I know most about, there's any guide, there's been some yeah. teams over the years where they've accumulated the LA Lakers were very famous for this back through, they had some golden years of Shaq, Kobe names yeah. that most people are familiar with, where they run the string of titles, this kind of post the balls run era. And they were the dominant force through the early noughties. Um, but then they were quite terrible for a long period until recently. And they went through this period for a couple of years where they were accumulating these top level, all-star legendary players at the very tail end of their career. And right. they had literally a starting five that at their peak would be just incredible. Yeah. But two problems. One, they're all super old, yeah. and way past their peak. And two, you cannot... I mean, such as Shaq and Kobe, you cannot have those two people on the same team. Right. It does yeah, not it, work. <laughs> right. 
absolutely. And like with, well, I mean, Ronaldo, if you're talking about not this season, but next season, he, he's going to be 40 by that point. He's going to be 40, is he? He's 38, wow. Ronaldo. Uh, Messi's 34. These guys are on the way down. They're still amazing, don't get me wrong, but they've already peaked and they're definitely on the way down. So, and you're right, you know, you really, you can only have one superstar in a team because the whole team is built around that one individual. And then you get the maximum out of that one individual. If you have two kind of kind of uh, superstars in there, I don't, yeah. I mean, it all sounds nice and commercially very, you know, interesting. Um, but in just on the pitch, yeah, I think as you're saying with your analogy with basketball, can't see it actually working. I, I do wonder, you having said that though, whether the world's moved on, and individuals, I think, are different from the kind of the 90s era, era uh, early noughties, where now I think if you wave a big enough paycheck and the commercial opportunity is there presented to you as a player, oh, yeah, I'll get on. I'll, I'll toe the line. It'd be interesting to see. But one thing to bring this back to markets and to, to conclude, part of Messi's deal is that as much as he's going to get paid, however much it is, 41 million odd uh, a season, I think, which comparatively puts him right up there in the football world in the sports world kind of cuts pretty high not the top paid sportsman but he's also going to get paid an unspecified quote large number of fan tokens something of which yeah. i never even heard of until that that was mentioned the other day but um getting paid in crypto yeah is this, is this the beginning of a new way of uh, of how sportsmen are going to get paid well, PSG aren't the only club that have um, their own sort of fan token. Mm. Um, you've got the likes of Man City, and uh, I think Man City are maybe the only one in the Premier League at this point, but others are going to follow for sure. No, no, um, don't, Barcelona don't, forget Aston, got, don't forget Aston Villa. What, Villa have a, have a fan you've token? Not, you've not got a fan token at Villa. Dear me, that, that's got to be the lowest <laughs> volume market on the planet, surely. <laughs> um but that is quite an interesting one. That, that they are, I mean, I don't know. Let's just put the crypto thing to one side for a second. But this is a revenue generating strategy for the club. They're being quite, uh, they're not being 100% clear on much detail. But they, did you see that the volume in uh, PSG fan tokens went through the roof in the, in the, in the week leading up to Messi joining? Um, and actually, the value of it the value of their tokens went up 130% in that week as in the lead up to the deal being done. Um, it looks like PSG have used some of their fan tokens to actually pay for this deal. And is, they apparently, they might have, they might have made up to maybe about 15 million euros. This is the club in revenue from that move, which they've pushed into to actually get the deal done. So mm. it's an interesting one. And yeah, they're being a little bit, um, they're not giving much detail on it. So it's hard to really know, but I think other clubs, you know, I think your big clubs, we're going to get a global, global following and, you know, tapping into that perfect demographic, right? The, the, the crypto demographic is the, you know, the young male and, you know, getting your, your fan mobilized and, and actually because you get, you get voting rights with these fan tokens by the way tiny 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 voting right it, it really it doesn't mean anything but 
to a fan who's thinking irrationally about their love for the club, you know, the idea of having a, a say is quite appealing, right? So there is that, they're, they're tapping into that. And, and then these fans are buying these things and actually the clubs are generating some revenue from it, which they're using to, to, to kind of score some massive deals. Um, so it's quite interesting. Do you, know, do you know how you leverage up that commercial opportunity? Go on. You create a European Super League. <laughs> uh, we're not going down that path. <laughs> We've spoken about this Look, episode, you just, whatever. You, could, you, you, well, you know, in a few years' time, you'll you'll recognise the opportunity. Well, I've got an announcement to make for any listeners who are keen on football, um, and if you do the fancy Premier League, the FPL. Then Amplify, we've just started our own league and I'd like you to join. Uh, so if you are on the FPL app already and you've got your team, because you've got to do it by tonight, the first match is tonight. So if you are on that app, then go to the join league section and the code for our league is 5WRE27. Join up. The winner is going to get an Amplify merch pack. So I heard that's a rumor not incentive about enough. Hold on. I heard a rumor about cash. Cash? Yeah. I saw some numbers flying around the other day. Come on. We're better than that. No one deals in cash anymore. That, that grubby. I thought, I thought we were stuff. doing non-fungible tokens. <laughs> yeah. Amplify fan tokens <laughs> will make up the bulk of the, uh, the winning package. Um, yeah. So get involved. Um, I'm in the league. Um, Sam North, if you're listening to this, did you win last year? I don't think you did, actually. I think you finished second. But, yeah, I'm going to take it more seriously this year. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I've got high expectations for a, a, a top position finish. So I'll be taking okay. home the merch. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Piers, I wish you a great weekend. And to everyone listening, take care, and we'll see you for the next episode. Cheers, guys. See you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.